Welcome to Almost Cooperstown. I'm Mark. And this is Gordon. And we love talking about baseball. Welcome, everybody. We are here on the final episode of season two of Almost Cooperstown. Uh, We're very lucky to have gotten this far. It's been a really great experience for us. And we're even more lucky today to have Adam Korengold here with us, who worked on one of the most interesting pieces of sort of baseball history that I've seen recently. Uh, There was a book put out, uh, added by Sean Foreman and a few others, that was going over sort of the history of the Negro Leagues and and, and what had gone on during that time. It was a series of essays. And Adam, you went through that and pulled out just some absolutely fascinating data. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm delighted to be with you here today. Uh, I just, I would love first to tell us a little bit about yourself, just, you know, sort of what you do, who you are, and then you sort of, you know, how you ended up kind of falling into this really interesting, you know, statistical look at at historical baseball. Sure, sure. So I've, I've been a baseball fan, as, as I could imagine, uh, both of you have been for, for most of my life. Uh, I grew up in, in the Washington, D.C. area. So for the first 33 or 34 years of my life, I kind of borrowed the Baltimore Orioles uh, for from my fandom, and then when I went to graduate school in New York, I kind of borrowed the Yankees. Uh, this was when they were winning a, a bunch of pennants in in the late '90s. And uh, professionally, I've I've been in kind of business research, benchmarking, uh, increasingly quantitative stuff for about 20 years now. When I started in this kind of work. I worked for a company called CEB, which did a lot of business reporting. I worked for a guy who was an architect before he went and got his MBA and started working for CEB. He was a a devotee of someone named Edward Tufte, who's kind of the guru of, of what they now call data visualization, but which 20 years ago was just called, well, the charts and graphs that you put into the report. So... I've been doing this for for a long time. During the pandemic, of course, we were all kind of sitting at home and and figuring out, well, what do I do with all this spare time when I'm not commuting, I'm not seeing friends and family, you know, not not doing a whole lot. So I ended up joining Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. And one of the things that I started getting into increasingly also was visualizing the data of, of stuff that was just interesting because this is still something that I do in my in my work. I run uh, an analytics and, and data visualization group uh, in my day job, which is at the National Library of Medicine. That's part of the National Institutes of Health. And uh, I started getting really interested in, well, how can we visualize baseball data? Because especially when you look at uh, books like the one that you just cited uh, and a lot of the research that comes out of Sabre, it's really heavily quantitative. It's got a lot of mathematical equations in it, but it doesn't visualize the data quite as well. Um, So what I started getting really interested in was how can we take the data that we see on the back of a baseball card or maybe even a larger scope and visualize that to really make it resonate 
Um, we're a very visual society right now. We don't like looking at spreadsheets, I think, as much as we used <laughs> to. We have a very low attention span. So if, if you want to uh, say something and, and really make an impression in a very short amount of time, it really, really helps if it's visual. So when, when, this, uh, when Negro Leagues, our major leagues came out earlier this year, there were uh, a couple short articles in it that gave some top line data about the Negro Leagues. And, and just as a backstory to this, um, the, the golden age of the Negro Leagues was roughly between 1920 and 1948. The whole reason why we had the Negro Leagues was basically the systemic racism that, that's always been here, where for the first 50 years of the 20th century, Major League Baseball excluded black players from, frankly, all levels of, of professional baseball, not just the majors, but also the minors. So the Negro Leagues, as they were called back then, were created as a place for black players to play and black fans to see black players play because otherwise they were excluded from the white major leagues and the white major league stadiums something that we've heard a lot over the years is well negro league statistics weren't quite as good or we don't know what the quality of negro league play was because they didn't have the same resources for record keeping and and whatnot that the major leagues did but we still have data because there were official games that were played and last year uh major league baseball and the hall of fame officially recognized the negro league statistics as official major league statistics and and they gave all of the Negro Leagues, there were seven total, the same status that the American and National Leagues have and that the Federal League had before them. They were, they were major leagues. So if you go on to Baseball Reference now, you will see statistics from Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and Satchel Paige and, and all of those great Negro League players from their days in those leagues. So this got me thinking about, well, we, we have some top-line data in this report in this, in this book rather, that suggests kind of what the level of play was in the major leagues, but I really wanted to go more deeply into that. So uh, the, the visualization that I created, which I think you're able to link to uh, mm-hmm. on, on the podcast page, it's on my Tableau Public, so you can take a look at it, looks at team-by-team statistics during those 20 years, between 1920 and 1948, and asks, what was the comparative level of play? So, of course, it's it's not a completely one-to-one relationship. There weren't a lot of head-to-head games. At least there weren't a lot of head-to-head games that were documented and where we have statistics for it. But what we can do is look at things like winning percentage, offensive statistics, pitching st- statistics, and we can ask, well, you know, what what was the comparative level of play? How were, how were the batting stats? How were the pitching stats? And what does that tell us about the similarities or differences between the two leagues? And so with, without uh, wanting to steal you know, too much thunder from, from the, the conversation we hope to have here, I think what we're able to see is that there was a very, you know, they were, they were almost at the same level. There, there, was, there was basically an identical level of play between the major leagues, the white major leagues and the Negro leagues during, during this golden age period. 
and I just think that's such an important thing uh, to be able to say. You know that these these were not these were not you know substandard leagues. These were major professional leagues in professional baseball with terrific players that were playing at a very high level. Adam, um, no, this is Mrs. Mark. Um, you know the the term organized baseball is something that's been thrown around for many years, and I and I guess I didn't realize until I read this book that that the it's a pejorative, really, because mm-hmm. baseball was used by them to by major league baseball as a pejorative to say well, those aren't real baseball leagues if you want real baseball leagues mm-hmm. right you have this I, yeah. I thought it was just you know well you know organized baseball started like in the 1860s and 1870s no that's not what organized baseball refers to it, it it's prejudicial and that is the at the root of all of this that you know they had to they had to do this because major league didn't want to acknowledge and so head-to-head games the few that were there were you can't look at them as indicative of uh, the one league playing against the other league because not but everybody played. It, it, w- it would be like looking at the All Star games and trying to determine which league was better because who won the most All Star games in that period. It's mm. it's not indicative of what the leagues were like when they were playing regular. Yes, obviously they want to win in an exhibition match, but it's not the same. And and I think first off, as I say, as somebody that as people that go through this data all the time, like. When we're doing episodes, we sit there and have pages of baseball reference open. So the people that mm-hmm. like you that do the data visualization, thank you so much just on that. Because when you're trying to compare a mass of players and having to like manually flip through every single piece of data, it's a lot easier just to look at a nice put together graph mm-hmm. by somebody and just be like, oh, yeah, yeah that's where they are. <laughs> well, that's what visualization does. Yeah. And in the end, that's why we do it, because you could and and if you're motivated to, you will pour through all those pages on baseball reference. But but especially when there's something in data viz called a seven second test. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you should be able to look at a graphic and within seven seconds, you should know what it's about and what it's trying to tell you. And if if it doesn't pass that test, you're going to move on to something else. You're going to scroll on to the next tweet or you're going <laughs> to you know, go on to the next channel or whatever it is. So that's exactly why we do it. So thanks to thanks to people like you who are interested in in this sort of thing, because this is why we do it. Yeah, and and you really? know, it, it it allows us to you know get deeper into. I think we, you know when we talk about having a, a conversations about Josh Gibson, you know, how many home runs did Josh Gibson really hit? Right. And because of the documentation, and it, it, it isn't perfect. We understand that. That's mm-hmm. not a reason to not include these people because they didn't have the reporting levels or or trust in the reporting, and we're we're sort of parsing this together from mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff, and it's still being updated, right? I mean, there's yeah, we'll have more yeah. players, more inclusion. Well, that becomes part of the history, is is what I would argue that, and and Josh Gibson's a really good example because if you go to his baseball reference page, that will tell you that he hit about 165 home runs. I want to say. Mm-hmm. And so those 165 home runs happened during documented Negro League games with other Negro League teams that were written up somewhere where there's an official record. So when MLB and, and Stat had picked up those records, that's what went in, 165 home runs. Well, depending on what other accounts you read, because a lot of these games were barnstorming games or they were exhibitions held with major league teams or against semi-pro teams. So if you look at all of those accounts, 
he may have hit, I think his Hall of Fame plaque says over 800 home runs. Right, right. It's, it's a huge you can read. Yeah, you can read some articles where he hit over 900, which would put him ahead of Soharo O, and he would be the undisputed global home run king. So, you know, forget, forget Barry Bonds, forget steroids. He would be well in front of anybody else. And so but the way I take this is it's, it's an historical lesson. And, and it has to do, of course, with systemic racism. It also has to do with how do we account for things, you know, and, and what is an official account? And it, it just leads to a lot of really interesting conversations. And the idea that, you know, if, if we interpret history as something that's documented, well, what does documentation mean? Right. So there's, there's really a lot to unpack there and I in think some really you- interesting ways. I think you raised such a good point about it being about systemic racism, because kind of like what what my father was echoing with it being, you know, the start of organized baseball. Even when you talk about these players Mm -hmm. and myself as somebody that's trying to give them credit, the way in Mm -hmm. which I find Mm -hmm. myself talking about giving them credit is true. It's like you have to think about how you're framing the entire conversation because we're not starting from a point where Josh Gibson is an equal player to the major right. league, the white major league baseball players that were playing at the same time. Like you don't start off from that headspace. And mm-hmm. that's the issue that like we've been conditioned because of our entire time talking about baseball to treat the major leagues like it's some kind of separate entity that is mm-hmm. better than the rest of the leagues. And therefore, anything accomplished in the major leagues is more meaningful is than somehow Josh Gibson. better. Yeah. Josh Gibson hit yeah. 800 home runs or oh, hitting nine, 800 home runs in the Japanese mm-hmm. league. Well, it's like that doesn't really count because it wasn't in the major leagues. But but why? It's still baseball. It's still part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's caveat to that we're not going to say the kid that hit a thousand home runs in his backyard is a a home run leader for Mm -hmm. major league baseball but that's not we're not talking about anything close to like that yeah it was a Mm -hmm. barnstorming exhibition game but that was still a major that was still a game between professional baseball players Mm -hmm. why are we treating it like it's somehow a lesser form of baseball yeah well and another good example of that is is when the dodgers signed jackie robinson and of course, this was before free agency when the reserve clause still still dominated. But uh, and you hear this when when soccer teams sign somebody and you know they pay a transfer fee, or when when a, a current major league team signs a free agent, what's part of that deal? Well, there's some kind of compensation, and it might be draft picks, it might be money, any you know, that there are lots of ways to handle that. Well, when the Dodgers signed Jackie Robinson, and I, I think the Kansas City Monarchs held his rights at that time, the Dodgers didn't pay any compensation. And so it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Oh, you know, this other team is not part of organized baseball. We don't owe them any kind of transfer fee or, or comp fee or anything like that. Like looking back on it, they were probably like, they should be grateful that we're picking up one of their exactly. Players. Yeah, like it would speak yeah. to them like that, like 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 somehow like oh, mm-hmm. we're doing them a favor. Like really, no, you're taking one of their best players. You're taking our talent. Yeah, and that was that was why the major leagues declined because, or the the Negro leagues, excuse me, that was why the Negro leagues declined because the quote unquote major leagues were signing all of their talent, and it was really interesting. So, because my, my father p- pointed out something that I didn't know about the Negro Leagues until recently. So all throughout, you know, 1920 to 1948, in, in Major mm-hmm. League Baseball, the spitball was outlawed. 
That was mm-hmm. not the case in the Negro Leagues at the time. Right. So when you think about that, you know, you're talking about these guys coming over, these guys playing. They're like, oh, wait, I don't have to deal with this not legal pitch anymore. OK, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Like that all day. yeah, yeah. <laughs> We'll yeah, well, I'm you. sure Satch loved that. Oh, yeah, he's like, yeah. great. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard that either, but that's really interesting because something that, that came out in, in this analysis was on the pitching side, I, I plotted a strikeout to walk ratio and earned run average. And the earned run average in, in the white major leagues was a little bit lower but the strikeout to walk ratio in the Negro leagues was higher. And so that explains a little bit of that, that if, you know, that's if anything, it it, it lends yourself to both of the points there that not only were the pitchers probably just as good, but the hitters were actually probably better, probably better. Yeah. Still hitting with these guys throwing a pitch. That's right. Yes. And and as evidenced by when these guys got to the major leagues, Right. You know, invariably, they were among the best players on, on their team, if not in the league. Mm-hmm. They had great success right from the start. Well, in that respect, maybe it was a little easier. I don't have to unless except for Gaylord Perry, you know, no, notwithstanding, you know, you, you didn't have to. Well, and what Satchel pitched until he was what? 65 years old uh, i might be exaggerating slightly but but that's a, that's the great part about satchel page is like he pitches 65 i'm only exaggerating maybe slightly <laughs> right <laughs> yeah guys yeah just like oh yeah that was 30 years ago for him it was like maybe five or ten but, <laughs> well he didn't eat fried food or run so <laughs> the uh, you know we talk about the racism and and, and how, how how rampant it was in every aspect of it and that started with Probably Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was, you know, sort of the the guy who stopped anything from progressing, and as he reigned over baseball for over over twenty five years. And I put a po- a picture up because it was his birthday of a one armed major league baseball player who played in nineteen forty five for the St. Louis Browns during the war. So they had trouble getting players, and this kid Pete Gray had his arm cut off. Famous story if you follow yeah. baseball and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And so somebody there was goes, a TV and, movie and, about him. Yeah, so, yeah, the was, movie about him. He was. Somebody, I, somebody, I remember. I only remember I that because it was in that strange but true baseball right, story. Right, you got reading all the time as a kid. <laughs> so somebody yeah. posts against it, going, "Well, he got to the major leagues before black players." Shaking my head, and I'm like, "Right." So um, you know, this guy, a one-armed guy, got to the major leagues before able-bodied, you know, Negro players could play in the major well, leagues. And it was like the same way you had guys like they, they hired the. It wasn't the midget also back then? As yeah, same, same guy, Bill Vex. So, oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that was Bill Vex. Yeah, so Bill I had actually was right. the St. Louis Browns, you know, guy. And then he, he he went over and tried to he hired Eddie Gatel in 1951 to bat for for there. But more interesting about uh, Bill Vex was that he tried to buy the Phillies when he was about 28, right, really young, and he had a group together, and he was going to bring in all Negro League ball players. You know, had to be uh, and, and Landis stopped this going. This is not going to happen. Wouldn't allow him to buy the team. Um, and when he finally got control of the team, which were the Indians in the late 40s, he was the guy that brought in Larry Doby, who, who joined the major leagues about a month and a half after Jackie Robinson joined the Dodgers in 1947. So. And it, it's really interesting here looking at your your, your visualization. Uh, the visualization for everyone will be linked in the uh, description of this episode. So if you want to go in there, I highly recommend checking it out and looking on it because it's extremely interesting. And I think for me, the most interesting thing looking at this is that, one, I didn't realize there were seven different Negro Leagues mm-hmm. prior to yeah. that. I thought there was just always one named that. One, when you right. look at the, the winning percentages, basically 
all of them are really solid outside one, which really just speaks to the amount of both talent and depth that you could have seven mm-hmm. different leagues that all actually had good talent spread across them. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. The, the outlier that you're talking about only played for one season. Mm. So, and this this is a winning percentage that's aggregated across the whole league for all teams. So mm-hmm. you would expect that they would be pretty close to 500 because these are teams that are by and large only playing against each other. Uh, but still, yeah, that's that's a point really, really well taken that, you know, you you don't see a lot of outliers there. And and it does it does kind of prove the point that they were all playing at a very similar level. And it, it, it's 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 because they played at the same time is why you can do this. Right. So I, I'm sitting here thinking, right. Could you compare the 1920s and overlay that against the 1970s or the 2010s and just say, how are the players today? Well, because they didn't play at the same time, it it doesn't have quite the gravitas that these were these were contemporaries, even though they didn't get to play with one another or against one. another. Right. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. I think one of the things things going forward and just how we think about this and the way major league baseball approaches it is that at the end of the day, I'm I'm glad that they're fixing the mistake that they've made for all of these years, because the only reason that all of these Negro league players aren't major league baseball players and consider and considered the exact same was because of a decision, major league baseball, the organization itself made back in those days. So it wasn't because like, Oh, they were across the ocean or something. No, we just decided these people don't count for 60 mm-hmm. years because of systemic racism. So the idea now that we're going back, we need to look at this and not talk about them. Like they should just be talked about as if they were another part of Major League Baseball, not as if they're this mm-hmm. separate entity. And I think that's where people really need to get to where we think of them as Major League Baseball. This was just baseball. It wasn't its own separate thing. It wasn't some kind of lesser thing. It was just baseball. And it was unfortunate that we didn't get to see what would have been the highest quality product at the time, which would have been mm-hmm. the leagues integrating and everybody playing together. Yeah. And and what I hope is that that having these data available helps us get there. Mm-hmm. That be, because because we have the ability to say, you know, here's this league, here's that league, here's this bucket, here's that bucket. And to your point that we're able to make comparisons about players who are playing at the same time, um, it makes it less of a theoretical exercise. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, and I, I hope yeah. Oh, well, sorry. We... No, and I go ahead. Adam. I hope that more people do this, basically, so we're able to have more conversations like this. Right. We're still going to argue. You know, is Babe Ruth the greatest? You know, baseball player. But why not? We argue that is Josh Gibson the greatest baseball player? Because what you've helped do here is establish that the platform he stood on was the very same that Major League. So no longer you can say, well, he didn't yeah. play in the major leagues. It doesn't count. That's no longer an argument right. you can make. Right. Right by by yeah, this, exactly. And so Josh Gibson should be thought of. Wow, is maybe it's Josh Gibson and Barry Bonds, and Babe Ruth isn't in the conversation at all. And and we're co- and it's coming because I can remember when I was a kid. I I mean we heard about Josh Gibson and I would hear about them when you would talk baseball with people, but they were always kind of talked about. And I hate to say it like this, but it's kind of how I remember it. Like kind of like they were tall tales. Like somebody was telling you about like like Paul Bunyan or something like, mm-hmm. oh yeah. And there was this mighty guy who played in the Negro leagues who could hit the ball over a mountain. It was like, oh, it's kind of t- told you like, it didn't really happen though. But the data there, it happened. And we just chose right. to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, right. 
And the cool Papa Bell expression, right, that he could turn the light off, he was so fast, and get into bed before it was dark, in a sense worked against how good these players were because it was sort of a joke, and you know, those, those are the things that are left behind, and that doesn't define cool Papa Bell as a player or a human being. But that express, that, that little incident is something that sort of follows his it's, legacy around and has nothing to do with him as a baseball player other than the guy was pretty fast. And, I mean, I'll call myself out. It's telling that I know – that about cool papa bell but i couldn't tell you any of his career statistics yeah that, that's the problem is that i can think of mm-hmm. a tall tale relating to this guy first instead of well yeah sure he had it's like if you only knew yogi berra expressions and you didn't know anything about yogi berra the player like mm-hmm. you're, you're missing out on what why him saying this and these things said about him were relevant <laughs> yeah but but the ability to, to compare statistics now that we have them. So I'd love to put Cool Papa Bell on a pedestal with Ricky Henderson, exactly. so that you know they're they're not just two really brash and frankly beautifully brash base stealers. But okay, let's see how they really compared to each other over the space of a career. Oh, I like that. I like that. So yeah, I think I think we can do that. So. Um, you you kind of you know got into this. Do you have other data visualization projects um, that you think about that um, are, are you're exploring that you're you're considering exploring along the lines of Ricky Henderson versus Cool Papa Bell? Sure. Yeah, I I think that's one of them. Um, something that I'm also looking at is is how how can we render these data? So. Um, looking at the visualization that you see and asking, well, are, are these the right colors? Is this the right way to look at it? That's something I think about a lot. Um, uh, let's see, what, I've, I've also done a visualization, which I think is also on my Tableau Public, to look at the 2020 season. Because as we know, that was a truncated season because of COVID. There were only 60 games. And there was this really bizarre spring training where they were at spring training for about two or three weeks and then that got cut short everyone went home then the season started again at the beginning of july and there was maybe a week or two of spring training so there was there was an open question around what's the quality of play going to be this year and you know our pitchers going to take half the season to get acclimated to pitching again Whereas usually they have the month of April to do that. And so now if they take a month to, you know, get used to things, well, the pennant races will all be over. So what are we going to do? And so the the visualization that I came up with was comparing that 2020 season to, uh, I think, the two years, yeah, the previous four years, rather. So you had a five years of, of data. And both for pitching and for, for batting, like, like with the one that we've been talking about today. And what I found is that 2020 really wasn't an outlier, that when you actually extrapolate that 60-game season, sure, the absolute statistics were very different. Far fewer home runs, far fewer strikeouts, far fewer hits. But when you look at averages, the numbers were almost the same. And, and when, you, you know, when you regress them and, and you find out, you know, What's what are the regression lines and what are the statistically significant differences between each year? There really aren't any. It was one of the so, reasons. 
yeah, it was like all coming out of 2020, you know, I was being like, I'm not going to take any player's performance both in 2020 and in 2021 and try and use mm-hmm. those two years to make a referendum on who this guy is as we did that to Dobson. Well, actually, you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're lying, Gordon, because yeah. we, both, we chose Conforto and McNeil for our fantasy team oh, and they killed us last year because they oh. both did nothing on the basis of they had a really good 2020 thinking but, but, they're but, ascendant, they're going to be great. I, I'm going to believe in them in 2022 <laughs> because I'm not going to hold mm-hmm. 2021 against them. <laughs> yeah. And and based on that, Juan Soto lit up the league in 2020, and he also lit up the league last year, should have won MVP, if you Agreed. ask me. And so hopefully he'll do that this year. Although I, I wouldn't hopefully... expect a Nats fan to really have a lot of love for Bryce Harper. So I, I would just say that. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. No. It, fr- it frustrates me watching Juan Soto because as a Mets fan, he's so good. Like, it's very mm-hmm. rare to watch a guy, even at that age, just for me to gush about Soto for a minute. Watch a guy who's 21, 22, who has probably the best approach at the plate that I've seen from a hitter. Like, his at-bats are just so good, and his ability to work counts. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you're like, he plays like he's a 15-year veteran in his, like, third or fourth season. Yeah. It's- yeah. It's so impressive. And he could be, he could be my son. That's how young he is. So, well, yeah, unfortunately as Met fans, we're going to see him for the next 15 years. And we just got rid of Freddie Freeman out of our division. All we can hope is that the Nats decide Freddie Freeman him at some point. Well, I, I, I I know you're both Mets fans, but I I sincerely hope that you continue seeing him in a Nats uniform and and that we sign him for what's probably going to be the GDP of, I I think I actually looked this up, the Turks and Caicos Islands. So, yeah. One one of the smaller Caribbean islands, yeah. We'll just all enjoy the really weird deja vu moment when Max Scherzer is pitching to Juan Soto this year. Yeah, that's going to be really, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be bizarre. <laughs> Have fun with that because he, he's, he is a gem. He's terrific. Uh, so, yeah. I, I'm just, I think I speak for everybody when I am so glad that there's baseball this season because we get to watch mm-hmm. Jacob DeGrom and Scherzer pitch on back to back days. And I guess yeah. more than that. <laughs> that's great. Well, well um, that's great. Adam, Thank you. Um, yeah. I think I think Gordon and I would be uh, very happy if you came back and did another one with us, um, and perhaps on some of the the other uh, aspects that we discuss, whether it's Henderson and Cool Papa Bell, or just sort of being able to compare them in a way that people don't uh, think of normally. And we will link uh, to your piece of content there, so everybody can kind That's of see great. what we saw right away. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to get on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so everybody in the description for this episode, you'll be able to find links to both Adam's tableau and the specific one that we are discussing here today. I definitely recommend checking them out. If you like our podcast, you will like this info. It's really interesting. Thank you so much. And uh, definitely look for me to, to come back. So I'm going to get right on that comparison we talked about with, awesome. with Papa Bell versus Ricky Anderson. And we'll we'll talk about that. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Breaking content here in almost Cooperstone. So <laughs> next episode after this, and we'll only go one week after this week's episode, we're going to go with our uh, 2022 season preview and picks. You don't want to listen to us because we'll probably get a lot wrong. Um, but we'll do <laughs> the last year was not good for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, that's great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Almost Coop.